You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, our audio supplement to the Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs blog about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Darren Conway. And I am Iron Man. <laughs> Good one. The Paleosphere was afire with excitement earlier this month with the release of a trailer for Dinosauria, a new animated series set during late Cretaceous North America and Canada. And dear listeners, it was so beautiful, I don't mind telling you, I cried. Its creator, animator and filmmaker David James Armsby is perhaps best known previously to the paleo enthusiasts for his animated short Sharp Teeth from 2019. David, in his newly canonized status hereafter, I should imagine, will be joining Niels in conversation later in this episode. Before that, our vintage dinosaur art title this month is Vertvenen Werelden. Lost Worlds in English, written and illustrated by Maria Hubrecht, published by Oesterweich in 1944. But first, issuing some of the more entertaining, shall we say, papers to have graced the paleosphere this month, we open, as ever, with some news. Niels, you have some exciting discoveries from Xinjiang to report, I think. Yes, indeed. These are um, not one, but two sauropods from uh, one location. It's uh, called the, um, I have to say this properly, you've, uh, you've, you've made such an effort to get the Dutch words right. So uh, <laughs> yes. uh, the Shenjing Kao formation, early Cretaceous Aptian aged um, bone bed in China, mostly known for um, a pterosaur. Yes, you heard it right. A pterosaur. No! Called, uh. <laughs> called Hamipteris. There is the P again. Hamipteris. And now this formation has yielded the first sauropod dinosaurs. Not one, but two. They are called Hamititan and Ciliotitan. Hamititan is a titanosaur, and it is known from a number of caudal vertebrae. So that would be a bit of tail. And from that, they gleaned as much as to place it within Titanosauria. So uh, really, it's quite extraordinary how paleontologists uh, keep doing this. Just uh, a, a handful of bones, and there you have it. You know, it's already a Titanosaur. The other one is called Ciliotitan. That one is known from uh, cervical vertebrae, which are pieces of neck. Every reader of SV Pow knows that is, in fact, the most exciting bit of sauropod you can find. And this one is found to be the um, closest relative to Euhelopus, which is a uh, slightly more well-known uh, Chinese titanosauroid. It's probably just outside of Titanosauria. So that's where you have to place these two. They are uh, macronarian titanosauroids, and in one case, uh, a full-blown titanosaur. And they represent the first herbivorous dinosaurs from this formation alongside Hemipterus, the pterosaur, and no. some scrappy indeterminate <laughs> <laughs> and some scrappy indeterminate theropod uh, material. So there you have it. Please welcome these uh, new titanic sauropods to the scene from China. Um, the formation Shenjingkao is in the very northwestern corner of China, close to the border of uh, Kazakhstan. So that's where you have to place them. Fantastic. I also just want to add that I absolutely love the name uh, Titan, uh because it's named after the Silk Road. Um, I just, uh, I just love that sort of thing. <laughs> I mean, that is lovable. What is not lovable is the pronunciation of pterosaur as pterosaur, like a lunatic. Um, without approve of this. Well, there, there's, there's, there's actually more pterosaur news because. There Literally is minutes before we recorded this. Exactly. Um, the Tupandactylus paper. The Tupandactylus paper, yeah. But uh, I don't think any of us had time to read it. But, no, I'm afraid not. But we yeah. do know it's out there, and I just wanted to have a shout-out to that. Exactly. Uh, what I haven't said yet is that the paper about these two uh, sauropods is in scientific reports. It's by Xiaolin Wang at Al, and it is open source, so we'll uh, link it in the show notes. Thank you so much, Niels. Um, Mark, not quite Mesozoic, but very much within the breadth of our interests. You have news of a proto-whale, I believe. All right, so I'm cheating here because, of course, we're all about Mesozoic life, except when we're not. <laughs> because, um, obviously, <laughs> I was contacted by um, Dr. Hesham Salam from uh, Hesham M. Salam 
the M is very important from um, from Egypt, and indeed it is about a proto whale. It's from a, a clade of whales which is now regarded as being a well. The paper describes them as being paraphyletic, and it it's agrees with some other um, toes we made in them. But anyway, it's um, a new protoceted with being the um, paraphyletic clade. Whale offers <laughs> offers clues to biogeography and feeding ecology in early cetacean evolution, and it's particularly interesting because um, it offers evidence that these early whales were more widespread and more diverse than was previously thought. Because um, I mean, this this is a whale that is between. And as, as the paper describes it, it's between Pachycetus, which you've probably heard of from Pakistan, um, and Basilosaurus, which we've all heard of. And it's somewhere, somewhere between, it existed about um, somewhere between 43 and 42 million years ago. It's been discovered in Egypt. This is one of those proto-whales that still has arms and legs, right? Yes, basically it's, um, most fossil animals are fragmentary, and it, it's obviously not known from terribly complete skeleton nevertheless the amount that they have is quite remarkable and they have a significant amount of the skull the jaw um, vertebrae and bits of the limbs so it's enough to tell that it was a quadrupedal animal that was able to come out on the land and they can look at the um, aspects of the limbs and the vertebrae and tell that it was able to come out on the land and well walk around and feed there but at the same time there is analysis of the toothware here that determines that it was similar in feeding habits to modern day well, pinnipeds, so seals and so on. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. It's an animal that's definitely a, a quadruped that can come out on the land. It's quite late for that. It's fairly late in the evolution of whales to be this land living or, well, not necessarily land living, but a quadruped that can come out on the land. The point is there's more diversity. There's more diversity in the, and there's a greater ge geographical distribution than was previously thought. Um, so it proves that Proto-whales weren't limited to um, India and Pakistan and that region at that time. They're actually more widespread. So etymology, um, basically, it's named um, Phoemocetus, which is named after the uh, Phoem Depression in the Western Desert of Egypt, which is uh, a locality in which many fossil whales have been found, uh, along with sharks and other fish and um, mammals in that period that have been... Well, uh, that's in land living mammal to wash onto uh, wash into the sea, but it's um, yeah most notably it's a source of fossil whales fossil whale material, and um, the species name is Anubis, which another fantastic name, really cool. Yeah, may I just thank Hisham Salam, who's um, an author on this paper, for contacting me about this, sending me all the material. Very nice. It, this is an, an international team behind this paper. We have uh, people from obviously Egypt. Um, I mean, I think most of the authors on this paper are from Egypt, but we also have people from the USA and Saudi Arabia. So it's a real international effort. Um, and yeah, congrats to all involved. Excellent. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Uh, finally, then, our esteemed guest from episode two, paleontologist, artist, and science communicator extraordinaire Natalia Jagielska has published a new primer on pterosaur research under the supervision of Steve Brissati. Uh, intended as an accessible publication for non-specialists, it fulfills everything it says on the tin and more than amply. Uh, it's beautifully illustrated with Natalia's own artwork. It's engagingly written in almost a literary style, something which I always enjoy in historical natural history writings and which I must say I miss in much of modern scientific literature. Yeah, yeah. Um, this primer is shorn of prolix technical language, but without at all dumbing it down. And where scientific terms are used, these are always clearly explained. Um, I'd like to read a short passage from it, if I may. The highly derived late Cretaceous Asdarkids soared above the heads of iconic dinosaurs like Tyrannosaurus and Triceratops at the tail end of the age of dinosaurs. They were the largest animals to ever fly, far larger than today's albatrosses and their comparatively puny 3.5 meter wingspans. On land, these Asdarkids resembled Lovecraftian monsters traversing the ground on long muscular limbs, their stalk-like heads perched on an elongate neck. The largest Asdarkids, like Quetzalcoatlus from North America and Hatsogopteryx from the islands of once-flooded Transylvania, stood three meters tall and with wings and neck extended in flight matched the size of a prop charter plane or subsonic fighter. When standing proud on land, they could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with a giraffe. 
In certain environments like the Hatseg Islands, these pterosaurs loomed over dinosaurs and filled roles of apex predators that elsewhere were held by Tyrannosaurus and kin. In summary, then, it's a compact, elegant overview of just what exactly pterosaurs and their evolutionary relationships are. And it even concludes with how the U.S. Army Research Laboratory are even working with pterosaur researchers to develop new pterosaur-inspired aircraft. For my money, it is an ideal primer for the lay enthusiast in whose vein I'd dearly love to see more of. Uh, It's published in Current Biology and is open access. And of course, links to all our news articles are as ever included in our show notes. I definitely read the paper. Uh, Natalia, uh, wonderful work. I mean, it's so well written. It's it's so um, it's so evocatively done. The 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 art is absolutely fantastic. Yes. And yeah, the more I look at um, <clears throat> pterosaurs, <laughs> the more I fall in love with them, and the more I'm thinking, goodness, what is going on with these animals? They are so incredibly strange. Exactly. All right then, uh, on to our Vintage Dinosaur Art book. Vintage Dinosaur Art. Verdwenen Werelden. Yeah, that's very good. Thank you, Niels. Uh, by, by Great Aunt Marie. Verdwenen Werelden. Yeah, as you affectionately yes, called our her. Great, our dear Great Aunt Marie. Um, it's a, a true vintage title this time, uh, published as it is in 1944. Absolutely. Yeah. But as I understand it, Niels, from your previous blog posts, um, work on this book was begun well before then, back in the 1920s. Um, perhaps you'd like to open the discussion for us. Well, um, I, I have uh, developed quite an affection for this uh, for this author slash uh, illustrator. Um, her name is uh, Marie or Maria uh, Hubrecht. She came from this uh, pretty awful uh, aristocratic family, as far as I understand it. She uh, she was kind of the black sheep of them. She was a bit of a feminist and she was a bit of a suffragette and. Uh, from what I've heard, the, the her family was pretty horrible, but she uh, got her revenge because she outlived all of them. <laughs> so here we have a, a lady uh, now in her 60s sitting on top of a small fortune. Not a whole lot to do and not a whole bunch standing in her way of doing whatever the hell she wants, right? Late in life, um, well, in, well into her 50s, early 60s, she kind of develops this interest in natural history. She starts painting, which she has never done before in her life. Her sister was a very successful painter, not her. She basically invited herself to um, paint a couple of paleontological uh, murals in Amsterdam, what was at the time the uh, Girls' Lyceum, now the Joko Smits Collegium, where the uh, freshly restored murals can still be seen to this day. And... Um, yeah, she's really taking to it, and she she kind of travels all over Europe, um, meeting with all these um, experts, including Dolo. Uh, she um, she mentions a lot of them in her in her book. She travels to uh, to Brussels. She travels to London. She travels to France, Italy, you name it, and talks to whoever she can, um, basically, um, probably just by pestering them or paying them a lot of money, or uh, I don't know whatever she did, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, she really became this self self-styled expert and starts working on you know this pretty impressive, pretty ambitious book, just a complete overview of the history of the world, the whole thing from uh its beginning to to the Pleistocene. Basically by the early 30s, uh the book is finished. And she's ready to publish, and then it just doesn't happen because there's a depression, and then there's World War Two. Yeah. And it doesn't take until 1947 before the book Verdwenen Werelden is finally published, um, a mere three years before her death. Gosh. So she did live just about long enough to see it published. Um, it was really glowingly received, and she really intended for it to become inter- internationally relevant. Uh, but it never quite happened. Uh, it was never um, translated into another language. But um, yes, it is absolutely marvelous, utterly unique, yes, and completely unlike anything else. Yeah, she's what I would call. You know how when you have discovered something, and sometimes you feel a sort of anger almost to realize how long you've been without having discovered them before, and and uh, 
why has it taken you so long to 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 come across uh, whatever it, the thing is and and this these are the feelings that i had when you thanks to you Niels, um i was introduced to to marie and her work because all the things that you explained because of her history um the position that she occupied and uh, and because of the scale of this book and despite all the things um despite not being a trained scientist or a trained artist um but she undertook this thing to the extent that she did and in a style that is just so refreshing for me to see and in the period um, that that it happened all of these factors just made me think my goodness um why why did i not know you before and and as you say niels i really do wish um it's too much to ask i suppose if we were in today to publish this book in other languages wholesale without any alteration to it oh my goodness i would want nothing more well exactly i i can't think who would wish to take this on but but i i'm completely with you i would love for this thing to happen and for her to be much more widely recognized well for my part um i must thank especially esther van gelder who uh, curated uh, an exhibition at the uh, Tyler's Museum ah, yes. in Haarlem, which is where I uh, saw the originals, uh, a couple of the originals of the paintings that are in this book. Um, I'll just say that the um, the style is very original. It's very uh, detailed and complex and busy and stylized. And it's interesting the way that most panel art from that time simply isn't. No, um, exactly. Nevertheless, one can see several of the... Some of the reconstructions are directly based on the work of others. Like um, there's, there are two iguanas on running away from this, I don't know, Godzilla in the background. Um, but it's um, the, the, the iguanas are based on the work of um, Gerhard Heilmann. Heilmann, yeah. You have some Knightian dinosaurs as well in other, in other scenes. Um, I, I don't really feel, I don't know if I can talk about the mammals as much and, and so on. But yeah, certainly there's like, uh, there, there's a, Obviously, there's the Nightian Brontosaur, there's the Allosaurus in the background, Stegosaurus, the Ornithalestes, um, Archaeopteryx. So a lot of them are basically directly taken from the work of Knight in particular. Yeah, definitely. And to her credit, Marie Hubrecht absolutely acknowledges this. Um, in, uh, in her words, she does mention Knight. She mentions uh, other people she copied, like um, in, uh, Heilmann you mentioned, uh, Otto Jakel, um, also, uh, Otenio Abel, when it comes to the mammals, she mostly copies uh, Robert Bruce Horsfall. It's an impressive name. <laughs> yeah. So it's fascinating because it's so unlike anything else that you've oh, yeah. ever seen. And there's still nothing else out there like this. Um, no, there isn't. So it's maybe just, maybe just how busy, the, busy these images are. Um, for example, the scene with the iguanodon and the theropod and whatever the hell that is in the top left of the iguana, pteranodon. There's so much going on. It's so dense. It's so packed in. There's, and there's so much tiny detail, most, most of which is just um, the fronds of the palms and the different plants, um, just the details of their leaves. It just reminds me of uh, sort of 18th century wallpaper. <laughs> this wow. incredibly dense... Uh... Well, it's, it's interesting that you say that, Mark, because, um, Niels, I remember you were saying in your blog posts that uh, a contemporary described uh, her work as having Japanese or Balinese uh, characteristics. Yes. And you yourself said that you saw something of the medieval tapestry in it. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. And, um, and just... Um, just to put on my my art historian hat, I'm seeing so many parallels here that, that it got me so excited because um, on the, the Balinese front um, and even the tapestry front, there is so much of this that reminds me of batik uh, fabric, for example. Her naive approach, I think, is the most uh, outstanding characteristic of her work. You couldn't escape a comparison with um, Henri Rousseau, who was uh, a naive painter, born some 20 years just before uh, Marie. And it's strange that there are, well, perhaps not strange, but I don't know. I don't know about Marie well enough, and I don't know what her uh, education and influences were, given that she wasn't um, formally trained. But there are so many other uh, uh, Eastern um, influences that I can trace here. 
um, or that, that I can spot at least. I mean, there's uh, there's even reminiscences of um, cloisonne enamel work because in spite of the the dull, well, you might call them a dull palette, the the kind of very muted uh, grays and greens. In spite of the mutedness, there is a strange jewel-like quality to them that's very hard to describe. And that's what I mean when it reminds me of cloisonne work. Um, cloisonne, by the way, is um, is uh, an applied art um, technique whereby metal wire is used in lieu of line work, if you will. It's used to delineate the shape um, in the image. And then these shapes are filled in with either gemstones or enamel paint. Right. And uh, there is so much of this, so much of this that reminds me of um, enamel, cloisonne enamel work in Marie's work. And and even more, so, <laughs> I could go on even more. <laughs> um, there's, there, are even, there are even elements of Persian and Mughal painting, especially in the lovingly rendered foliage. They are so attentively rendered, but not in in any way what you'd call a realistic manner. They are much more delineated and flat, but but so much attention is paid to them. And this uh, these these things uh, remind me so much of, of Persian miniatures. All these things this just got me so excited looking at her work because there are just so many so many parallels to draw. And it makes me want so much to see the originals, which I believe, Niels, were, uh, were painted in gouache, yeah, I think you said. Yeah, in, uh, in gouache with a very thin layer of paint. Yeah. That scene with the Iguanodon for me is particularly fascinating simply because it is, it is mostly, <laughs> it's mostly about the plants. So as you said, the plants are very two-dimensional and flat. So there's, there's little attempt at any kind of realistic shading in it. Yeah. It's funny you should mention the plants because the plants are as much part of the encyclopedia as the animals are. Yes. She talks a lot about plants, and she, she, she names them too. As I said, in most attempts at reconstructing a prehistoric uh, landscape or any kind of prehistoric scene, the animals are going to take precedence. So, um, I mean, e- even when you have scenes by people like Doug Henderson where the plants are huge and or they're, they're just dominant, the plants are dominant in the scene, nevertheless, dinosaurs or whatever animals they are are picked out, whereas here... The um, the Heilman Iguanodon <laughs> almost lost among this uh, sea of very detailed leaves, so these sort of fronds of these palms and so on, um, which is really fascinating. And you mentioned Rousseau and, and looking at the scene, the sort of Lake Cretaceous scene with the Scolosaur and the Triceratops. That's very Rousseau. I can I can picture mm, Rousseau's yes. uh, tiger coming in. Um, it, it wouldn't look out of place in there at all. His tiger exactly. coming in from from, from the right hand side. And, you know, maybe trying to attack the Triceratops. And there's the most amazing, I presume it's a Carithosaurus I've ever seen. Yeah, it's a Carithosaurus. left of that, <laughs> of that same picture. It's fantastic. I can say it is lost in this whole scene because, um, because most of it's dedicated to detailing the leaves. Again, not in a realistic fashion, but the leaves, just this hyper-detailed. Um, <laughs> but this, most of it, okay, so the central... Um, organism in this this giant tree and all the leaves are just flat but they're amazingly detailed every single tiny leaf is picked out um the the tree in itself looks stunning but it's by no means a realistic scene you've got like the animals don't really fit in a right if you think about it in terms of a a modern paleo art scene where they'd all be um they don't have the correct shadows and they'll be proportionally represented yeah they don't fit in that way at all um, they did like things that are sort of stuck into place, but it's really, really fascinating. I mean, and there's the um, sort of pangolin and kylosaur in the, in the back yes. there. Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that that Carithosaurus is also amazing because it's just really weird. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> yes, taking the duck bill description uh, more than literally there. I think it's like a moorhen. You can see a bit of that in the trachodon in the uh, in the other Cretaceous painting, the one with the iguanodons. Yes. And you can very much see it in um, in the mural that I mentioned before, because she also drew uh, a trachodon and Edmontosaurus, if you will, and it looks like Donald Duck. Yeah. For all the world, it looks like Donald Duck. <laughs> it really does. I, I do find the terrestrial scenes a lot more interesting than the marine scenes, because the marine scenes, okay, th- there is the one which is so busy with all of these different animals, as the uh, the giant scorpion and the trilobites and the bellum knights and everything, and it's so crowded and 
there's so much to look at on there, but some of the others just seem a bit perfunctory. Like, um, there's just, you know, stick a Mosasaur here and stick an Ichthyosaur there. I don't know. They're, they're less, inter- less interesting to me um, than the terrestrial scenes, which do have the incredibly packed detail, which, as you say, is nevertheless not realistic detail. It's just it's giving, giving an idea of this lush um, landscape and the kind of animals that would have inhabited it without being realistic yeah um which is really interesting because it, there's, there's no there's virtually no paleo art that's like this the scene with the sauropods too i mean they there is a better sense of scale than i mean or, or a more realistic sense of scale i should say than um, in the other scenes but nevertheless again there's hardly any idea of shadowing or perspective as such it's all uh yeah it's all rather flat these these things that you mentioned mark um the way that they don't inhabit uh their space in a three-dimensional way uh in um in the way that modern paleo art and a lot of western art does is again another another element that makes one think of uh east asian well asian um art practices um, and the, especially in the composition of the landscapes, because, as you say, they are less concerned with depicting perspective in uh, in an illusionistic way, and uh, and are more about uh, the arrangement of the shapes on the page, um, uh, and that's another very Asian characteristic, I think, well, historically uh, speaking. We should probably point out that if if it had been within Marie's. Um, technical ability to paint more like night she probably would have she probably would i have no doubt of it all of this is just an artifact of her receiving no training and arts just coming very late to her um so she she almost arrived at this fascinating greatness by accident (laughs) it's fascinating isn't it well i was gonna say it would have been shame almost if she'd um actually been more competent at just copying night or whoever, because then we would have just got the same as in every other book ever. Whereas this is unique. It's it's very unique to this particular book. It's very strange. Um, I mean, looking at the the image of all these Cenozoic mammals. So um, you have to explain to me which era is meant to be, but it's just so many different kinds of mammals all living in this incredibly dense, packed. <laughs> forest um the volcano or something in the background i think it's a volcano is that the one with the uh uintertheers you're thinking of i hope it's the one i'm looking at the uintertheers oh the rhino-y thing and there's a saddlebill stalk in the picture (laughs) i I, I, there's so much going on i I don't even know about the stalk i I keep seeing things that i've missed like (laughs) yes yeah there's officially a stalk oh yes exactly jaguar looking thing over on the left and there's yeah there's a uintertheer i think and then there's um yeah the jaguar looking thing is meant to be patriophilus right it's it's just ridiculously busy and there's a thing i can barely see in the top left that looks almost like a tarsier or a lemur or something Ah, that's just perching in the tree it's uh, it's meant to be a lemur and there's a bat (laughs) it's a bat i haven't even seen that yet oh yeah i see it there is a bat i mean this this whole book is just one big game of where's wally isn't it It exactly that yeah Packed in. It make a great jigsaw puzzle because uh, you never find. It take you ages to find all these bits. I've just seen the stalks. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! We should definitely make that happen. Yeah. In addition to the republication. Yes. <laughs> if we want to talk about the march of progress, we should probably talk about the very last image in the book, because that's yes. the Pleistocene one, and that's yes, kind indeed. of an outlier too. That's right. Um, empty. Not just because this this isn't prob- this is probably not the first thing you notice about this scene. But this is the only scene that has humans in. Hang on, what? Yes. Yes, I do. As skeletons. As skeletons. Oh, yeah. That's grim. <laughs> yeah, but she does introduce them in the text as the crown of creation and the greatest mystery <laughs> of all and blah, blah, blah. The other um, sort of noteworthy thing about this image, because it's such an outlier, it, it also, again, peculiarly reminds me this time of none of the other things that we were talking about earlier. There is a very curiously Lowry-like uh, feel to this image. Um, Alice Lowry is, again, another near contemporary of Hubrecht, born this time some 20-odd years later than her. And he was an English painter, uh, known for his scenes of uh, the industrialized northwest of England. And um, 
it's so strange to be comparing this painting to Lowry because the subject matter could not be more different from each other. But but it's yeah, precisely and again, all the animals are carried over from night. Yes, yes, that's right. But it's precisely that strangeness of this um, from all the others that that bears that comparison, and the um, there is a shared bleakness in this image, in the highly contrasting, yeah. almost monochromatic palette, and the stark, brooding sort of cheerlessness actually of the yes. figures in the atmosphere, which again, which evokes the, the those Lowry um, images. I'm glad you said that because I was trying to put a finger on which artist that reminded me of and that, that is exactly it so i can imagine these mammoths lining up to go into a factory well there you go to work <laughs> well that, that's it yeah that is exactly it that is it is very lowry like which the others just aren't so the others are all these very dense um scenes with lots of vegetation even though there are lots of like for someone who knows about Paliwat, it's distracting because, like, I skip back to the scene with the uh, the Macedons and uh, the Groundsworth and so on. And I was like, oh, yeah, there's Charles Knight's Smilodon in there. But this one, all, all I can think of is Lowry. This last Ice Age scene. It's like... <laughs> yeah, and he, here is suddenly, uh, as the very last image of the book, this, this really stark, harsh, uh, bleak winter scene after all these dense jungles that we've seen. And yes, and it makes it makes a really good last image actually, because because it's so different and it has this uh, a completely different impact. Um, Does anybody want to comment on the Tyrannosaurus Rex, Mark? I think you're duty bound. Or well, is it on the same scene as the Iguanodon? And um... yeah, because the funny thing about this one is she copies Knight whenever she can. Um, and Charles Knight had definitely painted Tyrannosaurus Rex before. But she chose not to copy him and instead come up with something entirely different. It looks like, yeah, it's based on how you would interpret. If you'd seen a few different um, images of T-Rex from that time drawn from the side, then you might try and come up with an idea of how it would look from the front. Um, it's very upright. Again, because of the sort of naive style, it loses the idea of the tail dragging out behind it and sort of a sense of the depth of it. So it looks very, very flat to me. Nevertheless, it is a bit like... Amon H5027 as it was first mounted with the legs like that and very bolt upright. Um, okay, the head's turned to the side, but I guess because it's easier, easier to draw <laughs> that way. But, um, <laughs> but yeah. it looks very much like that. Um, but yeah, it, it is. Um, I mean, it's also just very humanoid, the, the legs like that. that yeah. And, but as I said, I'm just distracted by all the foliage because that's much more interesting to look at than that T-Rex. So like, uh, it's it's remarkable that I would find the foliage more distracting in a, an image featuring dinosaurs than the dinosaurs. But in this case, definitely. Oh, heavens. <laughs> what have you done to Mark Vincent? I know. In this case, there's a T-Rex or whatever it is in the top right. But still, I'm looking at the ferns. Um, one, one more thing about this T-Rex. Um, if we can go back to uh, Amsterdam for a second, um, in uh, Artis, Amsterdam Zoo, there are two um, dinosaur sculptures, which I have also written about on the blog. And um, one of them is a theropod. And um, together with uh, Ilya Nieuwland, the historian, who also wrote for our blog uh, at one time, um, I figured out that this T-Rex was probably the basis of one of those sculptures. And next month, I might have some news to share about that. So I just wanted to oh, tease that. I just can't ec believe anyone based a sculpture on that. It's well, I'll, so... I'll, I'll, um, I'll, put an, uh, I'll put an image of the two uh, on the show notes. Oh, I can't wait. But yeah, we could go on and on about this book. It is a work of such incredible ambition, arguably um, an ambition that almost went beyond the ability of the artist but so much the braver on her part but yeah here she is i mean she went and did it man it's incredible exactly and uh i'm i'm very happy she lived long enough to see uh to see it published and i hope that she becomes more recognized and uh me too it's it seems to be happening and i i, I hope we are playing our part in this because there is nothing in the world like this is a remarkably different style to the kind of uh, classical realism that was predominant at the time. So you had 
people like Knight, Parker, Zaninger, it was all um, it was a lot more realistic than this. And their predominant style was again not necessarily strictly realistic, but classically realistic for quite some time. So it's amazing to see something, as Peng said, naive style that reminds us of this older East Asian artwork and artwork that copied it, like the artwork of Rousseau. So just stylistically, even though <laughs> even though we have some recognisable uh, dinosaurs crammed in, or other animals crammed into the scenes, it's just from a purely stylistic point of view, it is very remarkable um, even now. I mean, even if this kind of thing were to be, were to be produced now, it'd be remarkable for just being different to the to the norm, to the zeitgeist. And that's what I find most remarkable about it. Just the fact that it's not adhering to that realistic fashion, which has so characterized Paliwar and, and yeah. certainly did back then. Yes. I just want to echo, I think, um, what I said earlier about um, just how, how singular this work is in all of the reasons that we mentioned and and how much I would love to find out more about her, about her youth and education. And um, I'm just fascinated. And yeah, and I, like you, Niels, have um, developed a very sincere fondness for our great Aunt Marie. On then with the interview. Today's guest paleo artist is a filmmaker. Based in Scotland, David James Armsby has made quite a splash when he released the trailer to Dinosauria his upcoming anthology series of animated YouTube shorts. A lifelong dinosaur enthusiast, David has many more strings to his bow, including science fiction, fantasy and horror. He is also a talented illustrator, sculptor and an avid collector of toys and dinosaur memorabilia. Enjoy the interview! So, please welcome to the show, uh, YouTube-based animator David James Armsby. David, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing fine. I'm doing very fine. Well, David, um, usually when we uh, do these interviews, we uh, start with the same question, and usually we get pretty much the same answer. Uh, what got you started on dinosaurs? What got me started on dinosaurs? Uh, since I was a baby? I mean, it's toys, it's movies, it's uh, it's all of that. It's museums. Some of my earliest memories are going to museums. It's Jurassic Park. It's Land Before Time. Walking with dinosaurs. Like, I was born in 1996. Walking with dinosaurs was 1999. And, I mean, I had the VHS tape. My nana recorded all of it on a VHS tape, and we just ran through that every night over and over and over again. <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah, and honestly, the behind the scenes of that, the behind the scenes of Walking with Dinosaurs fascinated me as much, if not more, than the show itself. Like, seeing all those practical, those big practical monsters, the CGI creations, the walk cycles in particular, like the having this, these sculptures scanned into a computer and uh, animated was a massive uh inspiration when i was a kid it's 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 really um around that time when the making of features right started to become as much a feature as as the product itself just like with the lord of the rings that was around oh. the same time right dude lord of the rings the 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 appendices lord of the rings that you just you just named the other thing that inspired me to make films <laughs> like that <laughs> that gigantic like it's like 24 hours worth across the entire trilogy i'm staring at it right now it's what my microphone's on the microphone crane is on my blurry collection of the lord of the rings motion picture trilogy and uh, <laughs> Like it's there, <laughs> you know. Like I can, I must have watched the the appendices as much as the films, you know. Would I be safe in assuming that that was a a big step towards you wanting to be a filmmaker? Then, oh yeah, um, absolutely. It's the behind the scenes, the making of the maquettes. A huge inspiration when I was growing up was Stan Winston. Mm -hmm. He's he's the effects guy behind his studio. Is the effects guy behind like the Terminator, the uh, Predator, and obviously. Jurassic Park. Right. And Jurassic Park, I mean, for the original Jurassic Park, they made two life-sized Tyrannosaurus Rexes, gigantic robot Tyrannosaurus Rexes, you know? 
And yeah, as a kid, that just seemed insane to me. Like you, when you go on set with a life-size animatronic of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, you're essentially on set with a real-life Tyrannosaurus Rex. Like that thing can kill you. <laughs> it's huge. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's an um, an underrated aspect of Jurassic Park, though, because everybody is is talking about the CG. Yeah, but yeah. most of the time you're looking at animatronics and puppets, aren't you? Oh, absolutely. There's like six or seven minutes of CGI in the film. I'm not sure exactly how much puppetry is there, but um, it's certainly the puppets that inspired me more than the CG, even though I ended up doing, you know, animation. I ended up doing CGI animation, but I always try to do some sculpture work as well. I got I got into sculpture far before I got into animation. So how did you get started with uh, with animation? Is it something you just happened upon or or was it really part of what you wanted to do in the first place animation is something i like begrudgingly got into i didn't i didn't really want to learn to animate like i i appreciate animation to a certain degree i liked animated films i watched i was a particularly huge fan of pixar and um and obviously things like things like Mokuma dinosaurs those those sculptures scanned and turned into cg models that are then brought to life that's was insane to me. Mm-hmm. I the reason I started animating was because I wanted to make films. I wanted to make weird short films and like abstract at sci-fi dinosaurs, you know. And the only way to do that on your own is through animation. <laughs> the only way to make anything of any scope on your own is through uh, on your own in your own bedroom at at, at the time I was at the at the age I was was just yeah. to force myself to learn how to make anim- animated films. Force yourself how to learn it. That sounds like it was a, a belabored process. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I learned I learned to appreciate animation and it's become like an extremely like I, I love it now. It, going back into the history of it, I recently binged all of the Ray Harryhausen films, which is a huge inspiration for the Dinosauria series. So I've gone back and watched all of this stuff and and have grown an appreciation for animation but i at the beginning i i did not want to ca- i didn't care <laughs> at all <laughs> it took like three years of forcing myself to learn the fundamentals of animation until i was like ah, this is i kind of respect this medium all right i, I respect <laughs> this so um of course the reason we're talking right now is um a couple of weeks ago your uh, trailer dropped for your new uh, dinosauria series you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah, the Dinosauria series is a, so far, it's a five-part paleo-art-inspired anthology series mm-hmm. of short films. It's five separate, uh, unconnected short films about, uh, at the moment, only Cretaceous life. They're, they're each set at a different time in a different place. I think two of them are actually set in the same time in the same place. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah... The series wasn't always that, though. It was, like I said, it was inspired by Ray Harryhausen, and originally it was just going to be big dinosaur monsters having big dinosaur monster fights. Sure. But the more research I did, I was more inspired by... I was more compelled to make these more accurate. Like, I was more... I swayed more from the Harryhausen into the Walking with Dinosaurs. And I know Walking with Dinosaurs has its problems, but they portrayed these animals as real animals, you know? Sure, yeah. You you do uh, try to keep up with, with the latest scientific developments. To a degree, but absolutely. I try, I try right? But I am a self-learner, and um, everything's changing. And there's even already stuff in the trailer that people have pointed out to me that is wrong. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, and I'm like... Oh yeah, I need to fix all of that then. <laughs> I gotta got get hard to work. <laughs> like uh, one of the big ones is there's a bird and there's like a straight up modern day bird in one of the shots when it's like looking upon a dinosaur egg. And I, yeah, I know the one. Yeah, yeah. I just assumed, I assumed birds had become that. I, that was that's the only animal in the entire series that isn't based on a specific species every single other animal was based on specific species i just assumed each generic modern day ish looking bird had existed in the cretaceous i've been told that's not true i've been told that 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 specific branch of bird is what does not exist until the 
until 55 million years ago, I think. So I'm going to have okay. to change something there. So you, you mentioned you were um, inspired by paleo art. You care to mention any paleo art in particular? I mean, there's an obvious one in the trailer. There's like a, a massive in-your-face one with the Mark Witten woolly Pachyrhinosaurus. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't miss that. Yeah, exactly. I think everybody noticed that. He's easily one of my favorite paleo artists. That uh, that that image in particular is 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 very very obvious. There's like a there's the composition in some of his shots. There there's like a Dinosuchus painting that he's done that's separated between two trees, and it separates the canvas into three into thirds. So you have the the tail lifting lifting out one one end completely blank in the middle and then the head of the dinosuchus and uh, on the other end and it completely sells the gigantic scale of this animal as these gulls like all lift and and fly fly from from beginning to end of the frame like they follow yeah. these panels with you yeah i'm looking like, at the one it's uh really yeah, yeah, impressive yeah. i think most people most of our listeners will be uh familiar with uh your earlier forays into sort of this naturalistic dinosaur depiction because i i know you like to sneak uh, dinosaurs in there you know uh, i'm i'm thinking of neon daddy or something which has this completely <laughs> yeah. gratuitous appearance by uh, a t-rex a cybernetic t-rex yeah <laughs> yeah mm. but i think most people will be familiar with the one called sharp teeth yes which is this really beautifully stylized piece with triceratops and tyrannosaurus and uh, a nice little uh, twist ending there mm-hmm and even though it's naturalistic, I wouldn't say it's it's like a documentary. It's not it's not no. going full walking with dinosaurs, right? No, you're, you're trying to tell a story with a theme here. Yes, it's a story with a theme, and the honestly, I think people are getting somewhat of a wrong idea of what the Dinosauria series is as well with this documentary stuff. The Dinosauria series is far more documentary esque than Sharp Teeth is, but mm-hmm. they're still short films at the end of the day. There still has to be a main character. There still has to be an arc. There still has to be a point. Uh, I wrote a Patreon post about this at one point where I was talking about how I would absolutely love to just animate a bunch of Carithosaurus eating leaves for three yeah. minutes. And I would I would be completely satisfied because that's what I want to see. But my I make short films. I don't make... like I, That's not a story, you know? <laughs> like These have to be stories. I think the series gets better with that as it goes because there are five films in the series and the first film was mostly made. They were all roughly made at the same time. Like I've only just kind of gotten close to finishing the first one. Right. But the first one hasn't found its footing yet where it has still got some of that Ray Harryhausen blood in it where it is just a fight between two dinosaurs and that's all it is really like well, there, is there is a, a place for that yeah i know exactly there is a story there like there is a then that's the point there's a story there of an old it's called old buck and it's about a rubiosaurus or a styracosaurus it was inspired by having those uh merged because of that hannah specimen that asymmetrical styracosaurus yeah right that uh, one yeah 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 and it is a story about an old buck with his herd and he's defending it and he's defended it for so long. And it, it's almost like an old Western type story of right. yeah. this, this old, this old buck trying to defend his, t- his territory and the, the wear that, that, that takes on him. And it's quite personified in a way, like yeah. it's more personified than the next film in the series. And it's more personified than, than the next one and then the next one. Some of them are more surreal than others. Like each one of them has a twist. The second one is quite documentary. The fourth one is quite documentary. The first one's a we- almost a western. The th- the third one is a, a surrealist film from the perspective of a dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> and the fifth one is like uh, that's the that's the one you've seen from the trailer, which has the most like unrealistic color palette. It's the one that's like an autumn color it's like a brown with a blue uh during right. the yeah that's like the hell creek uh tyrannosaurus uh yeah. triceratops area that one does hark a bit back to sharp teeth right yeah that, it's a deliberate reference yeah like re- that one's like really on the cusp of like 
very very documentary but it's also like i don't even know how to describe that one that one's that one's like quite surreal (laughs) as well (laughs) these animals i'm going to be trying to make look and sound and act like real animals but the series certainly has to find its footing at the beginning and the first film i'm actually a little bit concerned about releasing it because it could be because it because it is a little bit more dramatized um i i have been noticing across your work um both the 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 more dinosaur focused stuff and also the uh the science fiction dystopian stuff that um there are some common threads common themes that keep coming back right and uh Another thing that I noticed, you're a bit of a baby killer, aren't you? <laughs> a little bit. The, the, I made a, I made a, I, I, I literally made a list on a whiteboard that said the things I can't do, and one of them was kill another baby, and, <laughs> and, and one of them was literally stop killing babies, <laughs> like on, like don't just make every film the, the murder of a baby. I will warn you, though, I had to break it once in this series. <laughs> one baby dies, and I, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, no. <laughs> Every time you see a wee kid, you'll be like, oh, God, is it him? I don't oh, know. No. <laughs> don't get too attached. So, yeah, but um, could you uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on, on the sort of the sort of themes, those common threads, those common um, values, if you will, that you keep seeing throughout your work? Well, they're probably a lot more subliminal. I might not even be totally aware of them, but the ones I deliberately put in, the ones I deliberately follow through on is like a like a man is not as powerful as nature. Nature wants to move on. The uh, Autodale series, even though people like to find a lot of uh, <laughs> uh, messages within that series, for me, it was always that man is self-destructive and nature will move on the uh, odale specifically if you've watched the whole series the town is literally just a last bastion of humanity any world that is completely toxic to our species but has totally moved on life is thriving outside of this world and it's moving on and it's 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 evolving and it's it's becoming something new and we as a little race is, are desperately trying to hang on to us. Where I like to think that the Earth is more powerful than us. I like to think that we are small. Right. Another one, there's another theme across so many of my films, and it's like motherhood. Mothers, mother characters uh, are in so many of my films, like so many it's it probably just goes hands in hands with having kids like there's kids in uh all of the audio films as far as i can remember mm-hmm. the kids are the, the main characters in most of them yeah or at least the first couple and um and i i guess it's just because i never grew up with it like i grew up with a single mom so i don't i don't relate to a dad <laughs> i don't know what i don't really yeah, right. know what, well, uh... da, da, yeah you know so uh, that's that's a little thing we have in common then yeah but yeah. it's this it's the same with sharp teeth that's a kid and the mother triceratops it's the same with again the autodale films there's there's mother characters in that and there's nearly never a father character who has a voice there's uh yeah. what's it mother of nature is about it's it's a mother character the mother the mother nature herself and it's it's the earth being mo- far more powerful and far more ambivalent towards us yeah there's uh even in the series even in the series there's uh the second film is about a mother the second film is about a mother troodon which the arctic troodon which i think is a dubious species at this point but i don't think this thing even has a name yet right so i have to call her troodon it's my favorite of the series. It's easily my favorite of the series. Maybe I'll start liking the fifth one more the more I work on it. The, f- the fifth one is by far the one that I've worked on the least, so it's like the most strange to me. Okay. <laughs> I'm not really sure what that one's even going to be yet. But the second one is like one of my... It's, maybe it might be one of my favorite films I've made in a long time. Like It's easily up there. Well, that's, that's good to hear that uh, after all these years, you're uh, still finding uh, enjoyment in your craft. Mm-hmm. So there's five episodes of Dinosauria coming, and uh, you mentioned all of them are about 
the Cretaceous and uh, North America. And you've kind of hinted that there might be more in the future. Um, how do we make it happen? <laughs> I mean, it'll be it'll happen if it's uh, it'll happen if I want to make it happen. Like that's it. The if it's if it's really popular and I want to make more, then absolutely. It's been making this series has been far has been the most like relaxing and enjoyable animation work I've done ever. <laughs> like ever probably okay. the the reason I, it's, it's very actually this is extremely important the reason this series even exists is because my most recent autodale film uh, immortal machine was a nightmare was an absolute nightmare it was one of the most miserable things i've like the most miserable i've been making a piece of art okay and uh, it went through total production hell i wasn't sure what i was doing and I wasn't even sure what I wanted it to be. It took so many months. I can't even remember anywhere between like five and 10 months for me to make. And it was just a total misery. And I was pretty convinced I was going to stop animating. So I went back and I said, I, I, I'm not, I'm going to animate something about dinosaurs and make sure I even enjoy doing this. And that's where old Buck came in. That's where two Styracosaurus just kind of having a fight the the weird little short film to make sure I to to remind myself that I enjoy animating, you know, yeah. Like di if I don't enjoy animating dinosaurs, then I don't enjoy animating anymore. <laughs> and I enjoyed it so much, I immediately started working on another one about the Arctic, and then another one about uh, the 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 Lambiosaur the Lambiosaurines, like the 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 Hadrosaurs, and then started working on another one and another one. Like I just was, it was the most energetic and sort of lively i've been making animation in a long long time maybe ever like really maybe ever <laughs> wow well that's the power of dinosaurs it always comes back to dinosaurs doesn't it yeah if this honestly i think the one thing if i'm not tired by the end of the fifth one if i'm not tired of this yet by the end of the fifth one and they are i suppose successful i would absolutely continue and there are films there wasn't originally going to be only five there was going to be more i have a sketchbook and there are drawings from films that i had to scrap not all of the films were going to be set in the the cretaceous i wanted to have one of them set in the jurassic about a diplodocus kind of similar to time of the titans from walking with dinosaurs yeah and there was another one that was going to be about paleo art itself like there was one that was going to follow a spinosaurus. Uh, th this is th this this one is. If I make a season two, this one's probably going to be in it because I've done a lot of this this work already. Okay, and it really and it was just a a story that would go through the history of paleo art. It would follow spinosaurus itself. I wanted to I wanted to follow something slightly older than that. Like an, an iguanodon would probably work slightly better. Mm -hmm, yeah but uh because then you could include like the crystal palace dinosaur type look but it was going to follow a spinosaurus and it would start with like more retro charles r knight-esque dinosaurs with a ray harryhausen style no not even ray harryhausen willis o'brien type stop motion style like black and white four by three stop motion silent film style and it would progress through the years there would be and you wow. would get your, and you'd you'd see the tropes. You would it would it would even progress once it gets to like the eighties. You'd get like that CRT look to the to the, to the film, and yeah. uh, you would have uh you, in the nineties you'd have like a shrink wrapped like ultra so spinosaurus that's look going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you'd have the shrink wrapped big badass spinosaurus. And it'd keep going and keep going. It'd become quadrupedal. It'd have the weird sail. It would then it'd rise up. It would have lips. And, and I was wanting to have a framing device that would imply that we're not done. Like we are not done. Oh, we're definitely not done with Spinosaurus. Exactly. Exactly. That's why I wanted to choose. That's why I had to choose Spinosaurus over Iguanodon because we found so many decent Iguanodons. Whereas Spinosaurus is such a such a prevalent and and current. Uh, subject of debate and change yeah and still such make... a mystery let's be honest yeah so the film being about change and reevaluation and learning is 
and the history of paleo art is was that that's why it had to be spinosaurus you know <laughs> wow that that sounds absolutely fascinating that one was like the second idea i came up with and i said i stopped work i was like i can't make this one it's far too much work i stopped working on a mortal machine because it was way too much work and was making me miserable i need <laughs> to make these easier <laughs> i need to make these way easier than this yeah so um David, we've uh, already kind of touched on it, but once Dinosauria is done, what are your plans for the future? Um, there, there might be more Dinosauria coming. That's good to hear. Um, any plans on revisiting Otterdale or doing something completely different? All three of those are equally likely. Yeah. Um, I would love to make a season two of Dinosauria if a lot of, like, a huge part of me just wants to explore the Triassic and the Jurassic. I know very little about the triassic and i would love to have an excuse to research that yeah well the, i find that the more i learn about the triassic the cooler it gets the more i learn about the triassic the less sense it makes to me honestly <laughs> it's totally bizarre and um so that's that's certainly like that's certainly a possibility uh i've also just been coming up with weird new ideas that i would quite like to to do and for the Autodale series, at the moment, I I do feel like the Autodale series is sort of a, like where it stands right now. It's pretty finished. Like there's a there's a wholeness to it. Like uh, yeah. I feel like every aspect, every single aspect of the Autodale sort of universe has been explored to a satisfying degree for me, except the sort of outside apocalyptic aspect of it, like the outside world where life is again evolving beyond humanities beyond humanity into this strange world that we can barely even understand right that stuff i would love to explore that's like it's up there with uh with the dinosauria season two where i'm like that's that's that'd be fun <laughs> that'd be a lot that's, of fun that's almost getting into uh more of a speculative zoology vibe yeah, I'm staring. Yeah, I've got the Afterman book right over there. The I, it's absolutely speculative zoology. Uh, it would definitely step more into a speculative zoology sort of uh, feel, but with like a a dark surrealist element. Like an important part for me about the wasteland outside of Ottodale is that we can't totally understand it. I really don't want just a big lizardy eel buffalo and that's uh, that's no. and that's just how life is evolving i want it to literally to just make enough sense where we can understand what's what we're being what you're being presented with but there's too much natural nonsense for like like the, i want i want like a a big eel buffalo that that's that's building that's 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 building a little house over and over and over again and it and it has no idea why and we don't ha we don't know why it's doing it it's just building this weird little house over right. and over and over again and every time it builds the house every single time it builds the house it's not satisfied with it and it builds another house it's like this weird creature that we can't ask why it's doing this we can't understand why it's doing this it's just doing it because it's it, i i like the i like the I like the questionable aspects. I like the, it's almost like Lovecraftian where you, you just don't quite understand this world. The horror of, of incomprehensible weirdness. Yes. Two biggest sort of influ influences on my work are probably the natural world and horror. Uh, yeah. Big, big, big fan of the horror genre. So it, Lovecraftian horror is probably my favorite type of horror like I've mentioned it in a bunch of videos that Lovecraft is one of my biggest inspirations and something more Lovecraftian would be like a, a Lovecraftian nature documentary is probably where the Autodale series is going. <laughs> a Lovecraftian nature documentary with like a dark fairy tale twist is probably where the Autodale series is going. Well, that's, that's, that's very cool. Um, well, we'll be uh, watching your uh, YouTube channel with interest. Um, David, would you like to promote yourself? Where can we find your stuff? Where can we um, support you? You can find my stuff on YouTube. Uh, you can support me on Patreon, sure. And you can check out my Facebook page. YouTube's the best place. YouTube is probably the best place to 
to see all my stuff. So uh, we can uh, see the new teaser on YouTube then, and your YouTube channel's name is? Dead Sound. Dead Sound. Yes. You can also watch the old buck early, two weeks early, on Patreon if, if you want to support me. This series would not be possible at all without my Patreon supporters. Uh, now, like now more than ever, like they they really, 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 really made this happen. Well, uh, David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for the interview. It's been great, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Yeah, that was some interview. Uh, thanks again to uh, David James Armsby for his time and his. Uh, gracious gracious answering i uh, really enjoyed it so uh, thanks for that one more thing i wanted to mention which he uh, actually told me after we stopped recording is that in i believe the third or fourth episode of the dinosauria series there is an appearance of a chasmosaurus which he actually put in as a little tribute to our blog which i thought was absolutely heartwarming that's wonderful yeah <laughs> again check out his work um on youtube on this channel called Dead Sound. Um, while we're promoting things, it just came to me that um, uh, I'm actually wearing one of um, one of Nati's designs on my T-shirt. Uh, it's the pearl clutching Tyrannosaurus. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and I really love it. And it, <laughs> since since I've had it, it, it's actually turned out to be a, a, a really good conversation piece. Oh, has it? Yeah. And uh, yeah, people really like it, and it's it's cartoony and it's funny, but it's still a very realistic, scientifically informed Tyrannosaurus, and that's what I love about it, and also that I can say, yeah, it's a friend of mine who made this. So, uh, Nati, perhaps you would... Uh, Thank you, Niels. Perhaps you would like to uh, to promote your own web shop. Um, well, I do have a very small shop on Redbubble. I'm afraid I don't recall its uh, URL, but uh, the, the name of the shop is essentially Himapan, which is uh, my social media handle. And uh, I think it would be best if we included a link to it in the show notes in this case. And thank you so much to everyone uh, who has bought anything from it. It's not the biggest selection, nor is the work on offer um, of uh, any sterling quality. But if there are things that you enjoy from it, as Niels has, then I am forever gratified. Uh, for the record, the URL seems to be redbubble.com slash people slash himapan slash shop. So, yeah, that rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we'll, 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 we'll put a link in the in the show notes as ever. And uh, uh, anyway, don't listen to what they say. It's absolutely marvelous. And you're going to want this in your life. <laughs> thank you, Niels. And uh, thank you, dear listener, for listening to another episode of Love in a Time of Chasmosaurs, and we hope you tune in again next month. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 I think Marx has lost his will to live. Thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. You can find all the images and links we discussed today on the podcast show notes on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs and on Twitter at Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, you can leave us a good review on your favorite podcasting platform or consider backing us on Patreon at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bandcamp.com slash bronzewing. Stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and we hope to see you again soon.